You're listening to the Conversations Speaking With podcast. I'm William Isdale. In 1969, Tony Kevin was a fresh-faced 25-year-old, sent to Moscow for his first ever diplomatic posting. At that time, Moscow was a cold, grey and foreboding place. The social distrust was palpable, and if you were a foreigner like Tony, chances are the KGB was listening to and following you closely. Tony left Moscow after his first posting, feeling like he hadn't really gotten to know what life was like there, outside of the diplomatic bubble. It was, he says, unfinished business. So in 2016, he set out to re-experience life in Moscow and elsewhere in Russia, all over again. But this time, the Cold War was over, Soviet communism was dead and buried, and Tony no longer a diplomat. He discovered an entirely new country. Of course it was still cold, but the people were warm, and the culture rich and colourful. Tony has spent a life in diplomatic service, including postings as Australia's ambassador to Poland and Cambodia. His book about his journey to Russia is called Return to Moscow, and he was kind enough to talk to me about it. Well, Russia for me was unfinished business because my first posting at the height of the Cold War from 69 to 71 was as third secretary in Moscow in a very small Australian embassy. And I felt because of the brutal conditions of the time, the Soviet state and the hangover of Stalin and the continuing extreme Cold War tension, that I hadn't really broken through to Russia in a way that I wanted to. And I felt it was time to go back, particularly because I was disturbed at the way in which relations between Russia and the West seemed to be on a rapidly declining spiral, uh, almost to the point of uh, moving into a new Cold War. So I thought, I want to go back and just see how it feels to be there. Is this still the same country I worked in 45 years ago, or is it a different place now? Why, why do we find it so difficult to be friends with Russia? So uh, I had a lot of questions I wanted to answer. And going to Moscow in 1959 as a young diplomat, do you remember what your first impressions were? What, what sort of a country was it back then? I just remember an incredible greyness and bleakness and, and stolidity and stodginess about the place. It was, it was not particularly attractive in most ways. And... Uh, the thing that saved it for me was, was music. There continued to be, as there continues to be now, a wonderful resource of classical music in, in Russia, and I, I made the most of that. And, of course, their, their art and their architecture. And uh, I, I felt that Russian history was, was a wonderful thing that surrounded me, even in the Soviet time, but I felt it was gone forever. I felt it would never come back. And I, I really thought that the Soviet system was pretty rock solid. I thought it would outlive me. But I, it turned out I was wrong. The Soviet system collapsed in 1991. As a, a secretary in the Australian Embassy in Moscow at that time, what exactly were you doing? What was your role? I was responsible for all domestic reporting, which meant I was supposed to be reporting on dissent, uh, the question of uh, human rights, questions of Jewish emigration, which was beginning in my time, the international relations, uh, the SALT Treaty and so on, that was being handled by the councillor in our embassy. He did international relations, I did domestic. 
And it sounds a bit John Le Carre-esque, like something out of a, a spy novel. Did you think that you were ever being spied on or followed or anything like that? Always, <laughs> always. Uh, we, the Cold War and the espionage that went with it was a constant presence. And I think your, your comparison to John le Carré is very apt because I, I did feel for much of the time that I was in a John le Carré novel. You speak about there being a safe room in the embassy. Can you tell me about that? Yes, it was a little room on plastic perspex cubes within a bigger room. And uh, it, it had sp- airspace all around it so that our security police, uh, Australian police who came with us to Moscow, could regularly crawl all around it, under it and over it and around it to make sure that nobody had pushed any wires through. Um, there was a sense that the embassy building, which was a beautiful 19th century building provided by the, the Soviet government to us as an embassy, was potentially full of microphones. And the only place where we felt that we could talk freely was within this little box within a box. And uh, we played a, 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 a chatter tape the whole time we were in there just to make sure that uh, we couldn't be overheard against a constant cocktail party chatter. What were you told about how you might be spied on by the Russians or how Russians might compromise diplomats? We, we were told that there was no such thing as a spontaneous social contact or friendship with a Russian, that even if it started off that way, it would quickly be monitored and taken under control by the KGB. So we were basically told, avoid any human contact with Russians, which was a dreadful thing, really, to live under. But we, we, we learned to cope with it. We, we kept our social life within our NATO community, and we spent a lot of time with friends from uh, American and British and, and, and European embassies. And those friendships became very strong because there was almost a, a wartime feeling about it. We were as it were, beleaguered in enemy territory. It's not that the Russians were not nice people. It's that there was this incredible sort of barrier separating us from them. And it was as much on our side as on their side. Both sides' security apparatuses were telling people like us, diplomats, be very mistrustful of the other side. So it sounds like you didn't really get to experience Russia as everyday citizens would or get to know Russians on a regular friendship kind of basis. That's correct. I mean, we tried in all kinds of little ways to, to break through. We, we went to Russian restaurants a lot to get the feeling of what it's like when Russians go out to a restaurant. And we, we did things like go on picnics where Russians go on picnics. So we, we were alongside them, but we very rarely spoke with them. So going back to Moscow, what were your impressions of how it had changed since you'd last been there? Totally. Uh, it, is, it had changed totally. A new country called Russia, not the Soviet Union anymore, new political system, a sort of a oligarchic capitalist uh, market economy, great deal of wealth, a great deal of style, poise, self-assurance in the people. The people even looked different. They were taller, they were better dressed, they were more fit. The old stodginess and pastiness and general poverty of of 45 years ago was all gone. And I mean, when you think about the way Australia's changed in 45 years, you can understand this. I, I, I would not have expected it to be the same. But what I really liked was the freedom to just experience Russia as a, a person who was well disposed towards the country, who was sympathetic, who'd taken the trouble to learn some Russian, and who was just able to go with the flow, sit in cafes, have a coffee, have a cognac, just drink in the Russian life, and it's a very normal life taking place around me. 
I, I saw after-school mothers bringing their children into the cafe to have a coffee after school. I saw people having business conversations. I saw lovers meeting across a table. I just loved the normality of it all. And the, the horror stories that I had heard from people in my circle before I went, oh, Tony, are, are you going to starve there? Are you going to be compromised by the security police? Uh, are, are you going to be attacked by hooligans? Uh, none of that happened. I, I found it a very civilised, law-abiding society. And I found it a society that I felt very much at home in. So some people talk about visiting Russia as a very alien experience, so they feel still like an outsider. Why do you think you didn't experience that? I think probably because I spoke a bit of Russian. And I, I made it my business to exchange a few pleasantries in Russian when I walked into a cafe or a, or a museum or something. I said a few words in Russian to, to show a, a sort of a desire for contact. I think very often, and Russians are very sensitive to atmosphere, some people go to Russia and we radiate fear and we radiate suspicion. And when we do radiate that, of course, it's, it's reciprocated. I, I have very good friends who spent a week on the Trans-Siberian Express. And for them, it was a rather alienating experience because they spoke no Russian at all. And they had a bit of a services background and they, they felt it was a strange and potentially hostile place. And I think they, they found what they were expecting namely an alienating and hostile place. It depends on the spirit in which you go into these things. Your book's called Return to Moscow, but you visit a number of other Russian cities and so on. What was your favourite place outside of Moscow? Oh, that's very hard. I mean, every one of them had its own attractions. I, I suppose you'd have to say St. Petersburg because it's such a a civilised and beautiful place and unique in Europe uh, for its architecture and for its sophistication. I found St Petersburg delightful and so much more so because it's been spruced up in, in all sorts of important ways and it's in a state of perfect repair now. Uh, the buildings are all freshly painted and attractive. The traffic is not oppressive. It's, it's well controlled. Yeah, I'd have to say St Petersburg. You talk a bit about the tension between a sort of Slavic identity and a Western identity. How do you think St. Petersburg straddles that divide? Well, St. Petersburg is very much the city of the Westernizing tendency in Russia, of course, built by Peter the Great as Russia's capital to break a window through into Europe and a, a major naval and seaport on the Baltic Sea to which all of European shipping would come. He wanted to make St. Petersburg one of the great capitals of Europe. So that's the Westernizing city. The the Slavophile tendency, you really see that best in the historic little towns around Moscow, the Golden Ring, and in particular the town of Suzdal, which is just a village now really. But that, to me, expresses the old Slavophile Russia in a perfect way. And uh, Moscow is the sort of an amalgam between the two. Moscow is both Slavophile and westernizing. Tell me about Suzdal because it sounds very enchanting. Well, it's a fairy tale place. I saw it in midwinter with snow everywhere, the rivers through it frozen. It's really just a village now because it was bypassed by the, the major rail and, and road uh, routes of the 19th century industrialization of Russia. So it's off the beaten track. An incredible number of churches and monasteries, which are now busily being restored and re inhabited by monks 
so that the state has given all those properties back to the Orthodox Church and given them enough money to rehabilitate them properly. It's also become a, a favourite place for retirement and weekend cottages for well-heeled Muscovites. And some of the beautiful old merchant houses, some of which are very lavish and beautifully carved wood, are being restored. So it's a sort of a craftsman's town, and uh, it's, a, it's just a lovely place. Your book also has a number of sketches of great Russian thinkers and writers, and one of them that stands out to me is Boris Pasternak. Yes. Can you tell me a bit about him and why you admire him so much? I admire him enormously, and uh, I think as, as I researched his life, I came to realise how much of the character of Dr. Zhivago is actually his own character, right down to all the, the human weaknesses, the, shall we say, the tendency to having a number of serious relationships with women. Um, he had at least three serious relationships. And uh, his personal life was, as Russians say in that euphemistic way, complicated. But he was a hero, and he was, a, above all, a, a Russian patriot. And the thing he feared most of all was being forced to leave Russia. And f fortunately, he was never forced to leave Russia, although he hung on by the skin of his teeth. And, uh, well, I can only say read the chapter, because that's the chapter in my book I'm I'm most proud of, actually. I feel I, I, I got to the, the heart of things with that chapter. On, on the point of getting to the heart of things, you say that Dr. Zhivago is still a key to better East-West understanding. Why is that? Well, because Pasternak straddled the pre-revolutionary period, the, the late Tsarist period. His family were, were rich Jewish secular Russians who lived well and had very good artistic and cultural connections. So when he's describing young Dr. Zhivago growing up in the years before the revolution, he's describing himself. He then went through the horrors of Stalinism, although in some ways he was protected from that because Stalin had a soft spot for him. He regarded him as a, as a magnificent poet, a wonderful translator of Georgian poetry. And Stalin sort of protected him as a sort of a holy fool. And the holy fool is a very important stereotype in Russian history because they're people who tell truth to power and somehow or other power feels that it has to protect them physically. And something like this happened to Pasternak. And Pasternak could actually see, because he outlived Stalin, he could see the dawn of a new Russia. And there's a lovely passage which I quote in, in my chapter where he talks about two friends of uh, Zhivago's who are sitting there and looking out on the city at sunset. And my cover illustration is really a kind of a symbolism of that view. And they, they're, they're looking forward towards the new Russia. And so he's a wonderful bridging figure. He bridges Tsarism, communism, and post-communism. Why did the book become so popular in the West? There's a story here I didn't know about the CIA's involvement. It was exploited because at the height of the Cold War, which went on, of course, for decades, the CIA saw it as a way of undermining Russian confidence in their own system. The CIA was always on the alert for any artistic product out of Russia that could be used to undermine the communist system, the Soviet system, and they were very alert to the potential of, of, of Pasternak's work of genius. And he, to some extent, left himself open to this because he was so angry that he couldn't get it published in Russia that he gave it to an Italian communist publisher who was visiting Moscow, thinking rather naively that, well, if it's published by an Italian communist press, 
it might somehow be accepted here in the long run. But of course, as soon as the manuscript got out to the West, the CIA got hold of it. They, uh, they organised a, a very good English translation by Max Hayward and, and Manya Harari, which swept the world. And the following year, we had the wonderful David Lean film, and then we had the Nobel Prize. So Jivago became the book and the film became a major weapon in the undermining of self-confidence of the Soviet system. You quote a poet, and he's, he's talking about the impact that Dr. Zhivago had, and he says, its clandestine readers not only inhaled the novel with the air they breathed, they also exhaled it, and its thoughts became increasingly part of the air of Russia as the country prepared itself for change. Do you think that it's the influence of writers like Pasternak and Alexander Sojanitsyn that ultimately led to the, the collapse of Soviet communism by undermining the, the belief in it? It had a huge impact, and, and the, the prevalence of Samizdat, where people typed out a novel on their typewriter with uh, 10 carbon copies, and, and then they gave the carbon copies to their trusted friends, and it, the process just kept on happening that way. I think it did have an enormous impact, and um, I think what it did was it, it, it helped Russian people after the horrors of Stalinism, and I talk about this in a chapter on the Gulag, in the Stalin system, everybody was betraying everybody because it was the only way to survive. And you didn't trust anybody except your closest relatives and you didn't even trust them. It was, it was a horrible period. It was straight out of 1984. And what Dat did was that it, it allowed Russians to recover their self-respect and their self-pride that they were now, after Stalin died, doing something to defy the system, even if it was just publishing a manuscript on their typewriter and putting the copies around among their friends. They were actually doing something for freedom. And Russians, I think, have always aspired to freedom. And the thing that stood in the way of freedom, the thing that keeps imposing autocracy on, on the Russian people, is the huge insecurity in the country because it's been invaded so many times, mostly from the West, but also from the East in earlier times. But in the last 200 years, Russia's been invaded four times from Europe by people who just basically thought Russia was open space to be taken over and exploited, uh, whether it be Sweden or France or Prussia or Lithuania, Poland or, or Nazi Germany or Britain, France and Turkey. People thought it was perfectly all right to invade Russia for whatever geostrategic reason. And so the Russians have had to accept a strong state in order really to build the resources for, for self-defence. And they're still trying to get the balance right, if you like, between a strong oligarchic state and a necessary degree of personal freedom. And what they hate is when they're treated by the West in a disdainful demeaning, derogatory way, as if to say, well, you're not quite civilised and, uh, you know, it'll take you a couple of centuries to catch up with where we are and that kind, that kind of language, that kind of talk. The collapse of Soviet communism is regarded by people in the West as a kind of triumph of Western values, that, that we won the Cold War. Is that how Russians see it? In a certain sense, it's true. It, it's not how Russians see it, definitely not. The effort to keep up with the West industrially under the Soviet system in the end broke, broke their hearts and broke their spirits. They couldn't produce cars and refrigerators and, and, and so forth in a way as efficiently as we could. They were always behind. They were always stodgy. 
because they didn't release creative energies that capitalism releases. They, they, were, they, they, they hobbled themselves by the Soviet system, which, on the other hand, provided a safety net for everybody, which disappeared in 1991. Now, you question, do they see themselves as having been defeated by the West? No, they don't. They think they made a, a social choice. And um, it was represented in the person of first of Gorbachev and then of Yeltsin, Gorbachev went a certain way to dismantling communism, but he couldn't go the final yards. He felt he had to try and reform communism, but keep it going somehow. Uh, Yeltsin realised that communism was a corpse, and Yeltsin just said, let, look, let's just throw it all behind us and break up this artificial construct, the Soviet Union, and let's go back to the thing that really matters to us, which is our Russian identity. Putin, though, regards the collapse of the Soviet Union as the greatest catastrophe of the 20th century. Why does he think that it was such a bad thing? And is that view, do you think, shared by, by many Russians? I think it's shared by about 60% of Russians on the latest polling I've seen. There's a, a nostalgia for what the Soviet Union was, not for its political system, not for communism. I think what's missed is the sense in which what Putin refers to as the Russian world, Ruskimir, was, as it were, broken up needlessly. There was no strategic pressure from outside to break up the Soviet Union. They did this to themselves. And it was very short-sighted of them. They lost 25% of their territory. Uh, Russia went from being one-sixth of the world's surface to being one-eighth of the world's surface. It's still a huge country, but they've lost some of their most fertile and productive and strategically important areas, the, the warm Black Sea coast, the, uh, the Baltic Sea, most of the Baltic Sea coast, the breadbasket of the Ukraine, the security glasses of the of Belarusia, which protected Moscow and the heartland from invasion from the West, from Germany, historically in France. So they've lost an awful lot, and they may not ever get it back. I don't think one can see the old Russian world being restored. Even today, Kazakhstan, which was one of the most important Soviet republics with a very substantial Russian population as well as a Kazakh population, has decided to abandon the Cyrillic script and to go for a Romantic script. Now, I mean, to a Russian, that's quite heartbreaking because this empire of theirs that they created over centuries of blood and sweat and toil and so on, it was kind of wantonly thrown away. Not only did they lose the empire, but so many of the newly independent East European nations quickly joined NATO. Do you think that Russia feels threatened, perhaps, that so many of these parts of its former self now are sort of opposed to it? Definitely. Russians feel that the Eastern European former Soviet republics have been weaponized against it, that they've become weapons. And uh, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Poland, Ukraine are all in the process of, or in some cases very advanced along the road, to becoming forward Western military bases aimed at the Russian heartland with heavily armed uh, missile systems, with um, symbolic sort of tripwires everywhere. The, the rhetoric, of course, is we're, we're only there for defensive reasons in case the Russians try to invade us. Now, I don't think Russia's ever going to try to invade Estonia or Latvia or Lithuania or Poland or even Ukraine. I think what these tripwires do is they increase the risk of war by accident, of war by miscalculation, because, of course, as the West mounts these military systems on Russia's borders, Russia's, Russians, who remember the 26 million people lost in World War II, react very strongly. 
So it's looking increasingly like Europe in 1913-1914 when Germany and France were competitively militarising along the border, each, of course, saying this is only for defensive reasons. We, we're only doing this because of the fear that they, the other side might come over the border. But it did lead to World War I. And the possibility of a conflict in somewhere like Syria spreading into World War Three is very real. And one of the reasons I wrote this book is because I wanted to say to Western readers, please think again, um, find a new way of looking at the way we relate to this country because it's in all our interests if we can learn to, again, to achieve a, a process of detente or relaxation of tensions because all the tendencies now, unfortunately, are going the other way. The tension is, is ratcheting up. But do you think that it's, it is that the criticism of Russia isn't justified or that by criticising Russia so much, we're just going to reap the antipathy we sow? I think that we've created a, a monster f- through our own information warfare machine. We, we have now got such a volume of anti-Russian propaganda and anti-Russian stereotypes bouncing around in ca- inside what I call an echo chamber of of Western information systems, Western media. We are prisoners now of our own stereotype of, of, of Putin's Russia. And uh, we can't really see the reality anymore because we've been overwhelmed by the stereotype we created. But to play devil's advocate for a bit, organized doping facilitated by the intelligence services at the Sochi Olympics, the murder in London of Alexander Livinenko, possibly trying to influence the US and other elections, supporting the Assad regime in Syria. Surely some of the concern and perhaps even condemnation is justified. All of those examples you've cited, there's an alternative narrative on all of those. Let me just give the example of Litvinenko. Now, Litvinenko was a serving member of the FSB, the the Russian intelligence service. He had sworn an oath of of loyalty, absolute loyalty to the to the motherland. He broke that, that oath. He began to work for British intelligence. Not only that, not only did he, as it were, spill the beans of what he knew to British intelligence, he also actively was trying to recruit former colleagues in the, in the Russian security service to come over and, and become double agents for, for British intelligence. So he, he broke every loyalty oath to his country. I think it's entirely possible people within the Russian security service took upon themselves to take him out for doing that. And I don't think this sort of thing crosses the desk of Vladimir Putin. I think it's quite possible that people took him out uh, from within his former organisation. There's also the possibility that he might have trotted on the toes of some very powerful oligarchs whose commercial interests were threatened by what he was doing, and they might have paid someone to take him out, which is very easily done, of course, So that's just one example. Every one of the examples you give, there is an alternative way of looking at it. And I don't say in my book I haven't got the room or the the authority to sit in judgment on all these specific cases. All I'm saying is there is usually a Russian version of this story. Seek it out and decide for yourself which version you find more plausible. Do you think that we had the Cold War for such a long period of time that thinking of Russia as an enemy is just so deeply ingrained that it's difficult to escape. It actually precedes the Cold War. It, it goes right back, I think, to, well, you could argue it goes back to Peter the Great building St. Petersburg, because what he was basically doing there was challenging 
the power of Sweden, which was at that time the, the paramount power in the Baltic, a major Western power. So here was this upstart, this outsider from the East challenging Sweden. It goes on with Napoleon, the Napoleonic Wars. I think the Europeans were shocked to know that they had all the continental Europeans accommodated to Napoleon. They were accepting the Napoleonic New Order of Europe. Britain, of course, stood aside, protected by its navy. The country that defeated Napoleon on the ground was Russia, and Russia saved Europe from Napoleonic despotism. Now, when Tsar Alexander was in Paris for the victory celebrations, the British Foreign Secretary, Lord Castlereagh, said to his associates, and it's on record, that we, we may find ourselves at war with Russia before long, simply because Russia was so big and so powerful. So this Russophobia, this fear of Russia, is something that's been prevalent in the West long before communism. There, there are novels by Joseph Conrad and by John Buchan that talk about imperial czarist Russia in, in this sort of same um, paranoid, defensive, hostile way that people are talking about Putin's Russia now. I, I think a lot of Russian people themselves feel that Russophobia is, is almost in our blood, that we, we can't get over the idea of Russia as a potential enemy. Tony, my final question for you is one that you yourself pose at the end of the book, which is, what can individuals of goodwill do? Yeah, well, I, I think we have to be patient. I think this is going to be a long process. I think we have to make an effort to to read Russian sources, and they're readily available on the internet. We just have, have to have the courage to, to press the right buttons. We, I think we should just try to have an open mind and to recognise that the, the message we're getting from our mainstream media sources about Russia is not necessarily the truth. Tony Kevin, thank you so much for speaking with The Conversation. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this Speaking With podcast. You can subscribe to Speaking With through iTunes or through TuneIn Radio. If you liked this podcast or if you have ideas for future podcasts, please send us a comment through iTunes.